Hello, hello everyone and welcome to the most physical game dev podcast in the world, House of Games. I'm your co-host Rune and today I'm joined by my host Odo and one of the most consulting voices in the industry, Jenny Easterlund. But before I consult you to consult us, let us consult with the House of Games to kindly open the doors and let us in and see what it has to offer in this week's episode of House of Games. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode, and especially welcome to you, Jenny Esselund from Game Boost. First of all, do you want to tell us about your company and what you do and a little bit how it started and tell us about yourself? Thank you for having me. It's nice to be on the pod. So I run this company called Game Boost, like you say, and what we do is that we specialize in remote game gigs. So on the one hand, you can say that we help game studios to find the most relevant contractors when they need to temporarily boost their teams. And on the other side... We just help game developers find good gigs that they can work from their homes. And how it got started, well, I was working as a studio manager at the Paradox Studio up in Umeå, where I'm situated. And I was having some issues with finding people, like basically everyone in the business nowadays. So we were thinking, okay, so maybe we just add some consultants Now, games must be made, and the teams were stressed, they needed people, but then we couldn't find any good consultants either, especially if we wanted them to have worked in games before. So that was kind of an issue, but back then, I was more walking around, mumbling to myself, like, why haven't anyone solved this? This business is so big. No, this shouldn't be an issue. Didn't really think that it was going to be me solving it, because one point in my life, I said, I will never, ever, ever become a consultant broker. That must be the worst job you can ever have. So it didn't really dawn on me that that I was going to do that. But then on the other hand, I had some friends who tried to start indie studios, and I can sort of see how they were struggling, especially financially. So I thought, but okay, wait a minute. These are the people that I'm looking for that I cannot find. And here I am at Paradox, you know, with this bag of money that they would need to survive to become the future rock stars. So that's when I thought, okay, hmm, maybe, you know, now it's time to stop being bitter and and see if I can be the one to do something about this issue. And then, yeah, then I started Game Boost to try to create these win-win situations for developers and studios. That's really cool. And I, sorry, oh, I'm going to hijack because... I had a question, but you sort of answered the whole question, and it was really nice. Because one of my questions was, why don't you make your own games instead of boosting others? And I know it sounds a bit rude, but I think you gave a really good answer on that. And that's, as a, as a indie developer and a small indie studio as well, I'm not in the position where I can hire people yet. But I think what you're doing is, it sounds really neat and something we really need in the industry. So... That's awesome. Odo, please take over from here. <laughs> sure. Very interesting story. And I really like that to make a, sort of a statement out of hubris. Gandhi, I think, said, uh, be the change that you want to see in the world. So 
I like that the attitude that you went for it instead of just, you know, being bitter mm. about it. So very much kudos to that. But I think that was not, there was some thinking going into that because I basically had my dream job. Like running a game studio is the most fun you can have at work, I would say. It's really, really fun. So to just leave that for some idea that I had no idea if it's going to work, it was, I don't know stupidity or, or curiosity or whatever it was a leap of faith maybe leap of faith i would say i mean luckily it turned out great but i didn't know that back then so it was a lot driven by this desire to just help people have the same experience that i have in the games industry to be able to enjoy being in it cool and on that topic i'm curious what would you say is the regular customers for your business what does their situation look like and how are you able to resolve them or paint up a scenario if you will yeah i mean right now basically all our clients are uh, swedish double a and triple a studios those are the studios with the money so those are the ones who can actually afford to have consultants i really want to be able to reach the, the little smaller studios but haven't really figured that out yet so for now it's the bigger studios and maybe 90 percent of the consultants that we rent out are programmers unreal and c programmers you know we, we work with all disciplines so we also have some artists some animators designers but the vast majority right now are programmers i would say mm, all right so a side question to that. So you said AAA and AA. So for a layman like myself, what would be the difference? Or is there a line in the sand where you add an extra A, so to speak? And is there like a single A category? Good question. I mean, I think there are probably as many answers to that as there are people in the games industry, probably. To me, it's just a matter of production value and then share size of the game. I don't have a good definition, but I don't think there is a single A game. But then there are the triple I games and double I games nowadays. So triple indie. Oh, right. That's actually what I think too, as a solo developer who makes very low budget games, everything myself, it's from my own pockets, so to speak. I sort of look at myself as a single I, single indie studio. And then I would imagine if I could hire one or two people, I would call it a double I studio. And if the game became like, for example, I used to download the haters on my Steam Deck. That's an indie game. But to me, as a single person making one a game by myself, obviously, haters to me is at least a triple I game or a double A even. So it's like you said, it's it depends on who you ask, but I would consider myself in the bottom of this hierarchy and I would consider myself a single I studio and I will sort of try to work myself up to become a double I, triple I, and then a, a, a single A and then double A and then triple A, so and so on. But to me also, just one more thing, like as a single I studio, if we can agree that that is a thing, I get sort of insulted when I hear like, oh, this in the studio, and it's like, they have a $2 million budget. How the hell can you call that uh, an indie studio? But then obviously indie is also independent. You know, that 
you know, it, 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 that's also a part of the mystery here, like how to define things. So, yeah, it's like you said. I mean, if you're not signed to a publisher, you are by definition an indie studio. So it can be pretty large studios. Yeah, exactly. So even like those big studios. Would you call the Valve an indie studio since they don't have a publisher? Well, now we're in a slippery slope, but, but circling <laughs> back to, 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 you know, let myself off the hook a little bit here, circling back to, to my or Game Boost customers, I would say if we, we look at them at size, then maybe they are 50 employees or above and make 10 million SEC revenue yearly, maybe a little bit less, but around that number. Those are the kinds of studios that we work with right now. Yeah. That seems like a, a reasonable categorization, but I understand that it's hard to, to draw a line on such things, I suppose. Yes. So the kind of customers that you have is, among other things, AAA studios, as you said. So I think me and other people also are curious of how is it to work with such companies because getting the foot in the door for major names it feels to me that that would be very difficult or like they wouldn't want to work with anyone they want perhaps somebody that is also has the triple a stamp on them or something so how how do you get started with doing business with such companies I mean, if we're talking about Game Boost and me, how I got started, it was, I mean, I was lucky that I had worked at Paradox. So that is a studio that most people know and recognize. And I'd been there for maybe almost 10 years. So because when I started at Paradox, I didn't even come from the games industry. So I knew absolutely no one. But when I left Paradox, a lot of the people that I had gotten to know at Paradox had also left for other studios. So I kind of had at least someone on all the bigger studios. So that was sort of a way in for me. And also just mentioning that, hey, you know, I'm from the industry. I worked at Paradox. I ran a studio. I kind of know what you're talking about when you tell me what you need. For me, that was a door opener because the games industry is Like you say, it's a little bit closed still. And I get it because I also tried working with other consultancy firms. I mean, they gave me good candidates, but they were not exactly what I needed. And I think it's really, really hard if you haven't worked with games and then you're going to try to understand what, what kind of talent people need. It's going to be really hard because it's we have so many different specialist roles we have different game genres and there's a lot of different factors that come into play when you're going to make a good match for a team and a consultant so i get that it's hard and i get why people sort of want to work with other people in the industry because it's so much easier i feel for me to make that match so that is the biggest usp i think of game boost that i can actually vet people and make good matches but how do the consultant get into those bigger studios that that is the hard part because like you say they want people with experience preferably from AAA. so that is a little bit of, bit of a bummer and that was the one thing that didn't actually go according uh, to my initial plan because when i started game boost i was very 
nationalistic. My idea was that, okay, now I'm going to give back to this industry and especially to the Swedish industry. I'm going to work with only Swedish indies. I'm going to boost them. I'm going to give them the money so they can grow and become the future rock star. It's going to be great. But then (laughs) quite quickly, I understood that, you know, if I'm going to work with the bigger studios at my clients, they need certain experience and there's not enough volume in the Swedish indies. We have a lot of indies in Sweden, but not all of them have that kind of experience. So I had to kind of start thinking a bit bigger. So today Game Boost works with basically anyone globally that has enough experience and wants to work remote contracts. So yeah, it's a little bit tough to get into those studios if you're entry level, say, or you have only worked with, with indie titles. It sounds a bit like a catch-22. So the bigger companies who want to work only with AAA people, how what is their expectation of how people get from school and being born basically all the way to AAA if they won't get hired? That is a good good question. How do you go from being born to a AAA developer? Yeah, without getting a job at a AAA. But, but bear in mind also that I, I only have the consultant perspective now. Oh, right. So when you go with a consultant, the main thing is that you want them to run from day one. Like when I ask the studios, what is most important to you? It's not even skill. It's fast onboarding. So I think that is a way for them to sort of say, okay, this person has done a similar size production in a similar size genre they will probably be able to hit the ground running. Versus if you get the junior that has been in a small production, they're going to have to start learning how everything fits together, who they should talk to and, and all of that. I have a question about this. So I'm currently in Japan and here they tend to hire people even though they have absolutely no experience. My wife just got a job in a car dealer place. And before that, she applied for a job to learn programming, even though she does, she barely knows how to turn on a computer. And my theory is that it's very, it's cheap to hire people here. So the companies can afford to sort of, you know, spend three months teaching them how to do certain things. And then from there on out, they will sort of learn on their own. But you said that in, in Sweden, people tend to, well, in the gaming industry, they tend to want to hire people who worked in the AAA industry, for example. Do do you think it has anything to do with, like, it's just too expensive? Well, no, yes, yes and no. When it comes to hires, it's a little bit of a different story. Then you would hire people with less experience and at entry levels with no experience at all. Then it becomes more about drive, personality, passion for the games. So I think it's very different if we're talking consultants where you need kind of a lot of experience to be able to hit the ground running or if we're talking hires where you can come in with a lot of passion and drive and some skills and then you will learn as you go it's a little bit different there good to hear i always because i lived abroad like my entire adult life and when i moved back to sweden just last year i felt like when i went to arbetsförmedlingen like where you look for work and stuff like that it felt like every employee was asking for just these humans that doesn't exist. It was like 30 years of experience, you know everything. And I was like, 
how can you get in anywhere? The requirements and the standards seems to be so high. And then I was just thinking about these poor students who are just, you know, they're fresh out of school. They don't have experience. Like, how do they get in? But judging by what you said, at least it sounds like, you know, the passion there should or will shine through. And that's yes. a chance to get hired from that. Because when you just look at what people are asking for, it seems to be fucking impossible to get a job even as someone like me who's published four games when i look at what other studios are looking for i'm always thinking like oh there's no way i'm gonna get that job like the stuff i do versus what they are asking for it's no way they they're looking for people who are just the best of the best and those people are very few and far between i imagine those people are very few and, and sometimes you have to also coach people a little bit in this area and be like, okay, if, if this is what you're asking for, you know, we've looked at, well, we mostly use LinkedIn. So, so we looked and you also want them to be on site. <laughs> then it's like you have two and a half people to choose from. H- how are you going to get them? Because they're not available. They're obviously working somewhere because they're super senior and super good. So sometimes you also have to tell people like what you're asking for is going to be either impossible or, you know, require a lot of money or, or a lot of time. Even if you see a job and you are like, oh my God, they're looking for Superman and that's not me. Maybe try to apply anyways. I mean, you can tell them, hey, you know, I know I don't fit all the criterias, but here's why I still think that I'm a good fit for you. So, because I think recruiters, we kind of like people with self-awareness but also with drive. So if you show that you are humble, but you also have drive and passion, I mean, that's a good start. Then you also have to have the skills, but you know. Wow, yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, that's something I certainly needed to hear. <laughs> if things don't turn out right, because I, uh, you know, I love making games, but it's difficult to run your own little studio. And I always think, ah, what if I work for someone else? I would still love that. But then, like I said, when I read the criteria, it's just like, no way. I, I don't think I have what it takes. But I do know I have the drive at least. But yeah, that, that's good news, I think. That's good to hear. So I've been uh, listening a little bit about listening to a podcast by the Swedish Research Institute and their gaming industry division. And they talk a lot about that we have a lack of so there's an article circling around in Sweden that says something like, oh, in the next couple of years, we're going to need tens of thousands of game developers, for example. And on the other hand, you have a lot of people who are interested in making games and a lot of indie developers, for example. So what would be the reason that they're not connecting, so to speak? Is it that the established companies are not able to utilize the actual skills that they could or is it an issue with people not having enough either education or experience or whatever it may be or is it some some kind of mix what's your take on it it can be a mix of course but regardless of the reason the reality is what it is studios need people and we have people and if these people are junior you know, we have to find a way to utilize them because the facts are if everyone wants seniors, it's not going to be enough seniors. So that's, you know, impossible. 
I think, one, maybe some of the studios need to lower their expectations a little bit. Because I think we need to maybe be better at taking these juniors in and leveling them up. I think that is... We're not really good at that in this industry. Not obviously talking about all studios. Some are really good at this. But as an industry, I think we lack a little bit in this area. We tend to take juniors in and then throw them in the deep end of the pool and they either sink or swim. And if they think, we're like, whoa, why didn't they produce stuff? And, you know, it's not weird. It's a junior. So they need support. So I think if I were to run a studio again... I would make sure we became really, really good at leveling up juniors. So looking at the onboarding, looking at internally, how do we develop these people? But that is also hard because that requires that you have some seniors and that you have some seniors that is also interested and pedagogical enough to do this. So it's not super easy, but I think instead of looking at like, okay, who's wrong here? We should look at, okay, if this is the reality, what can we do? Because we want to make games, and these are the people we have. But I wonder how, like, if I were in a position where I could hire people, I would, I mean, it's just, it looks so expensive, like a programmer, the amount of money they make. I think I mentioned on this show before, but I had a, a friend here in Tokyo who worked for Square Enix, and he was flown to Sweden to DICE in Stockholm for an interview. He still works there, but like, you know, he's at that point where he don't tell me how much he makes, but it's it's good. And I mean, the fact that they flew him all the way to Sweden just for this position, it's first of all, it speaks of how we're lacking talents to do these jobs. But also like probably his salary and everything, is, it seems so expensive. Everything seems so expensive. So if I were in the position where I could hire someone, I would obviously want someone who could just start working straight away and not ask questions. And I wonder, I mean, that must have something to do with it too, right? That it's just so expensive, everything, especially programmers. and, and... It is expensive and it's becoming more expensive, but that's because the demand is so high. I mean, and it's still less expensive than the IT industry. I mean, that programmer could probably, you know, shift to IT and gain a lot more. Not only is it expensive, but when you make a game, it's such a risk also because you don't know if the game is going to make the money back or the whole industry could shift overnight and now we're no longer into zombie survival horror games. We want some unicorn flying simulator game. So because you're sort of developing these games in a vacuum so by the time it's out it could be the industry could be somewhere else so that's again i I feel like it's yeah it's a big risk to to hire people with no experience if you have to spend you know four five six seven months sort of teaching them what to do so it feels like it's really stuck between a rock and a hard place almost I mean, it is a big risk, and that's (laughs) kind of the fun part and the scary part of game development, because it's a hit-and-miss industry. And and I think you're right. I mean, that's probably a big reason why people are looking for seniors, because you may not have that time. Once you have developed this person, you're bankrupt, and then what are you going to do? But I think the bigger companies... They don't have this same issue. I mean, it's still hit and miss for them as well. 
But if you have a few games already that, that makes the money, it's a little bit safer for you to take in more junior staff. But I think this high risk that we have is uh, uh, something I talk about a lot because I think that's where consultants really shine because those people you can just downsize. And, you know, that sounds terrible when you talk about people like that. But if you have a small studio and obviously you look at cost a lot, but we tend to look at cost very short term. We look at, okay, what's the cost for our next milestone where we get more money from the publisher? Or, you know, what's the cost until we release the game when we start making money? And when you do that, obviously an employee is going to be cheaper than a consultant. But when you look at it like that, what happens if you don't get that extension from your publisher? What happens if the game doesn't do so good? Then you're going to sit there with a fixed cost of staff. At least in Sweden, it's going to be quite hard to downsize. So I think sometimes when you think about consultants and cost, you kind of have to look at the, the bigger picture a little bit to see if it's really uh, more expensive or not. And that is also a way, I think, for, like you mentioned, like what if I could hire, like if you're a mid-size or small studio, you can hire a consultant just for the sole purpose to sort of level up your other programmers or artists or whatever have them six months and you know spread their knowledge to your more junior staff that is one way to also use them without having to have that cost forever yeah very interesting another thing i'm curious about something that i think is also very relevant to game developers is how do you market your services so i imagine a big part of your success must be due to marketing and networking and making sure that people know that you're out there. So how do you do it? How do I do it? Uh, when I started, it was a lot of cold outreach. I just basically spammed people on LinkedIn saying, hey, I used to run a studio. Now I do this. Do you have any needs? And luckily for me, I mean, I had quite early some people answering. So that was good. That still happens a lot that I do that. But I still remember the first time someone actually reached out to me first. That was, a, that was a big moment. And also the first time when someone had just heard about Game Boost without me telling them. It was, a, it was doing a reference call for a consultant. And the person I was talking to said, oh, you know, I hadn't heard about Game Boost before. But, but this morning a colleague told me by the coffee machine about it and it sounds really cool and I was like oh my god someone that wasn't me you know told someone about game was that is so cool so I guess a lot happens mouth to mouth Swedish game scene is not that big once the ball is rolling if you're good at what you do that ad happens a lot that you get recommended but it's still outreach that I do and now I also have Tommy on board he's really good at branding and recruitment marketing so we're starting to do a lot more of that a lot more posts and marketing i haven't done much of that before and that seems to also work quite well so it's a mix of, of a bit of everything i also go to a lot of conferences around the world and uh, try to go to events and dev meetups and, and stuff like that to just talk to people to jump back a little bit about what we spoke about earlier. So 
say for example that you would be a game developer that want to get into the industry that you've maybe made some one or a couple of uh, small games so you have a small small portfolio but is there any way you could recommend like if you want for example to work on the next call of duty game or some big studio what path should one take or is there something that you should focus on to elevate your career as a game developer in in your mind Yes, you should definitely focus on Unreal. A lot of studios are using Unity as well, but the bigger ones who has a consultant and most hires as well use Unreal. So if you're going to choose which engine to focus on, just choose Unreal. If you are a programmer, C++ is a good choice. Most bigger studios use that. But I also think when you write your CV or profile or personal letter or whatever it is that you do, maybe don't add everything you know. Try to pinpoint the area that you are really, really good at. And it can be really narrow. It can be AI programming or or I'm really good at uh, making uh, creatures. So, So you do that and then instead of calling yourself maybe a junior 2D artist, you say I'm a mid-level creature artist or whatever it is that you're really, really good at. That way you can sort of cheat the system a little bit and make your profile stand out a little bit more. I think people spend a little too little time on writing good CVs. So that is one thing that you can do. Spend a little time on that and try to figure out where am I really strong and then try to sell that part. I'm a Unity user and C-sharp programmer. C-sharp, is that close to C++ or what do you think? No, I don't think so. I mean, in the one year and a half that I've been running Game Boost, I've had zero requests so far for Unity. So if you want two gigs, I would really recommend Unreal and C++. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. just means that in Sweden, I'm not getting much of it. And I think that's because the bigger ones who has most people are using Unreal and C++. Yeah, I know uh, Unity bought Veta Studio, the graphic designs behind Lord of the Rings, I believe. But Unreal is obviously the, the biggest one. But as we talked about in previous episodes, I'm, I worry that too many Unity-driven games will look very samey moving forward. I feel like I can already tell as soon as a game is made in Unreal. So that that's a shame. But at the same time, I understand that it's biggest. I mean, they're both good. They have their strengths, the engines. So it's not that you know one is good and one is bad. Yeah, I'm not defending Unity in any way here. I'm just... Uh, thinking also like you know uh, for example my friend who works for dice they have their own frostbite engine and capcom they have their i forgot what it's called but you know a lot of companies make their own engines as well so do you know anything about that like what what kind of uh, programming language is usually required for those it's usually c plus plus for all the at least everyone uh, that i work with with custom engines it's c plus plus Mm, that's that's really useful information. I mean, now Embark is looking into Go and Rust, which is pretty cool. But but I think they're basically alone right now. 
So I would say it's mainly C++. Cool. Yeah, that's... Thank you. Since we're on the branch of the sort of other side of your business, so providing work to professionals who are maybe in the game developers or smaller studios, if I understood correctly. So can you tell us more about that side of your business? How does that work? And as a smaller entity, how do you get work through your business? So first of all, when I started, I was only going to work with indies. Now it's indies, it's also freelancers, it's full teams, and it's also outsource studios. So all of them can find gigs through Gameboost. You would have to have, and this is the biggest blocker, I think, for the majority, that you would have to have previous professional experience. I haven't found any way around that. And it would need to be in most of the times in bigger productions. So a lot of the indies that I talk to, it's going to be hard for me to find them gigs. And that that is the one thing that makes me a little sad, actually. And the one thing that I want to try to look into, if something can be done there to help those guys as well. But yeah, you have to be able to show that you've done something, either been in a big production or, you know, that you maybe released your own games or game and had... I mean, maybe you're just a solo indie, but you released a game with really good network code or, or multiplayer something or a special kind of AI or, you know, that, that could work. But then again, then we're in this narrow area, like I'm really good at this specific thing. I'm curious to know if, if you see any, how should I put it, some sort of pattern that Swedish studios rather hire freelancer instead of hiring full-time workers and the reason why i ask is just like when i went back to sweden last year i'm in, back in japan now but when i went back to sweden last year i looked for a part-time job and the manpower company whatever consulting company if you will they sort of hooked me up with this gig in a uh, recycling center and they sort of like ah, and these are your perks so they sort of told me about these perks and she almost sounded ashamed that it was not good enough. And she's like, so what do you think? And I'm like, seriously, I lived in Japan for 10 years. I get fuck all for working here. <laughs> it's just like, you go to work, you work 12, 14 hours a day, and you don't get anything. Like, nothing. So all the things you just told me, all the perks, the, the gym membership, the commute money, all that stuff sounds too good to be true to me. Because I never worked in Sweden as an adult so where was my point yeah my point is like I also mentioned before it sounds so expensive to hire people in Sweden so I wonder is it do you think it's more beneficial for companies to hire freelancer or do you see some sort of pattern there that people rather hire freelancers and before you answer one more thing Hogwarts Legacy I believe that's developed by Avalanche Studio which is a Swedish company I'm also quite curious if you any Odo or you, Yanni, know if a lot of freelancer was involved in that because that seems to be a really good game and it's been six years in development and I just can't imagine how much that would have cost to develop if all of that was made in Sweden. So I imagine a lot of freelancer was involved as well. Sorry, that was a very all-over-the-place question, but <laughs> Yanni, please try to make sense of it. So when you say freelancers, are you talking about non-Swedes? Swedes or foreigners, but basically you just hire them for a short period of time so they don't get underneath your umbrella of all the 
the Swedish perks and you know the parental leave, the the holidays and all that stuff? I would say that ninety nine percent still very much prefer to hire people. I mean that is the most common answer I get when I contact the people at first. No, we prefer to hire or or you know for this role we're only looking to hire. So I think. I mean, if we compare to the IT business where I sort of started out, they're very used to consultants and they use it a lot. The games industry is sort of, I think, moving in that direction a little bit, but we're not there. So people very much prefer to hire. That's uh, very nice to hear. I just, as you said that, uh, it reminded me of uh, when PlayStation bought Bungie. And they bought another studio quite recently. But basically, there was something about the deal that they want to keep the team. And I think that has something to do with it that building a team is maybe more important long term than just getting freelancer in and out. Because that could be... Yeah, because it makes sense. I mean, you want to... Game development, it's a very long... First of all, making a game, it's a long project. I mean, four or five years if you're lucky two three so you want to have these people on but then you're also going to either have a lot of dlcs it's a long lifetime or you're going to make you know a sequel so you want to make sure that you keep that knowledge in-house so i think that is the main reason that you want to hire because you want to keep that knowledge so you can keep building on your product because it's really freaking hard to make games and if you have people who have learned to make the type of games that you are making, you do not want to lose them. <laughs> you want to keep them forever. So I think consultants are good in, in some scenarios, but the bulk of your people needs to be there for the long term. And that's easier to do with hires. Maybe this is a stupid question, so excuse me uh, for that. But I'm curious, if you look at the long term of the industry do you see that there's any potential for for example triple i customers to exist or is the trend of everything is gonna flow towards triple a continue or what do you see well there's gonna be a guess but why shouldn't i I mean i see no reason why triple i customers should not be able to exist i mean people like different things I don't see how a AAA game is going to ever make as much money as a AAA game, but maybe that's not the point of them. I think they're still going to be able to coexist to create that variety of games for people to enjoy. In a previous episode, I talked about an idea that there is AAA in the games that get really big. Really a good term, so thank you for that. But I talked about the issue that amongst indie devs, there are plenty of people who can produce games that sell really well and is more than enough to live on, say Stardew Valley, for example. But there is also a disconnect with some people that are really good at a lot of things, but they lack a certain... For example, say that you're really good at programming and music or something, but you can't do graphics. So if you would have some sort of platform or something where you could just exchange hours between indie people, so you could just 
this person who knows a lot of programming could just do some programming for this game, and this person who knows graphics could just, you know, do the other thing. I mean, originally I had an idea for Game Boost to sort of be that. I had an idea to sort of build a community where people could meet, help each other out, and exchange that sort of work between each other. Haven't really happened, but I think if you just reach out, I think you can find a lot of people to work with. If you go to meetups, I mean, now the guy's working on Sembo, which is a startup sort of creating a LinkedIn for the games industry. That could be a place where that can happen. So I think it's not as hard as you may think. Obviously, you need to find the right people and the right person because you're going to work closely together. But if you just reach out a bit, there are a lot of people who are interested in these sort of things. I think what the most indie teams are struggling with is maybe to find that business person. They know what games they want to make. They, they know how to sort of make the game, but they may not know how to build a studio or sell the game. And that can really screw them over. Exactly. And for such a platform, one thing that I uh, I keep mentioning, but if there was, was somebody who was really good at marketing, who would just go around market in the games, I think that person or that small company would make a lot of money. But those companies exist. I mean, in Sweden, we have a few. We have uh, Cake Town Interactive. They market in the games. And we also have Cold Pixel who market in the games. And, you know, I think both of them even, obviously you can either, you know, pay them by whatever the hour or month or whatever that is. But I think they also work with uh, rev share deals if you don't have the money up front. So we have some companies who specialize in helping in the studios market their games and sell their games raw fury also one of those studios exactly but they are a publisher i mean companies that are not publisher obviously we have a lot of publishers and if you get a publisher deal they will help you with all of that but if you want to go if you want to stay independent there are companies that you can just buy their services of sales or marketing Mm, yeah i did not actually know about that so that is great yeah, me too. Maybe you can invite them. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yes. Yeah. Because I think a lot of this, uh, I mean, when it comes to indies, I think part of the issue is that unlike AAA games or projects, there isn't that much money per project. So that makes it sort of, to get some volume, you have to do a lot of work so naturally, I guess it doesn't become... It's more like a murky waters rather than like a big fish to, to catch. Interesting. Yeah, I would love to have them on and, and talk about those sort of things. Cool. I can hook you up with at least Cake Town and Cold Pixel. Yeah, please do. That would be great. I mean, we have Matthias who's sitting in Umeå. He works at Cold Pixel, so he could maybe be an interesting guy to, to talk to. Yeah, exactly. I have actually spoken to him a little bit, but I did not know that they worked with marketing indies. So I thought they just made... Do they make their own games or...? No, Cold Pixel is a, as far as I understand, a marketing firm, but they work very closely to Aurora Punks, which is a collective of indies. They also do some... They also have something called Dev Punks, which is a sort of 
outsource consultancy uh, business. Mm. So they have sort of all branches of it. Yeah. But then Cold Pixel is on pure sales and marketing. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, the more you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because they just marketed some Hoya game, the singing thing. I have not heard of that, actually. Is it like a karaoke game, like uh, Rockstar or... To be honest, I don't know what the game is. I just know that the song that all kids, and mine too, listen to non-stop. Mm, the TikTok generation. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Do you play like on your spare time or are you interested in games other than making them or making them happen? Um, <laughs> well, let's say that I play a lot more than, than before I started Paradox. I mean, when I, when I worked at Paradox, obviously I played a lot of our games. I like strategy games. So I played a lot of cities. I, yeah, I've made so many weird cities in that game. Uh, yeah, I kind of like that. And I also played a lot of Stellaris. But then I, I could never get into the more hardcore ones like CK and, and those. It's just too too hardcore for me. But nowadays I play mostly with my kids. So we play a lot of more of adventure games. So we play a lot of Unravel, which is really nice because I really love that game. It's so beautiful and it's great to play with kids and it's extra fun that it's made uh, by Coldwood in Umeå and some of my friends. So that is really cool. We have a little Unravel figure that sits on our TV. I played that and I play a lot of It Takes Two, which is also great to play with kids. Yes, that's uh, on my to playlist with my wife. She's not really a hardcore, hardcore gamer, but uh, she does play some games and I, I told her about that game and she Seems interested. But I think that is good for them because I'm not at all a hardcore gamer. Like I need to have games that are easy. Cannot be more than like two buttons at a time you have to press or, you know, <laughs> has to be easy to play. And that game is, it's, it's that. It's fun. Maybe a bit off topic, but I get, I'm curious now, like how did you end up in Coldwood if you were not a gamer? Like how did that happen? Uh, it didn't, but I did end up at Paradox, and you know it's. Uh, oh, sorry, Paradox. <laughs> it, it is a little bit of a weird story, I guess, because the only thing I knew or thought I knew about the games industry that it was just everything was just horrible. Like <laughs> it was all crunch, and and the salaries were really crappy, and you know, just misery all over. So when Paradox reached out, because I was working as a consultant at the time, so they reached out and they wanted a producer or product lead. I was like, hmm, okay. This is a little bit curious. Like this business seems to be growing. How can it be so horrible? That sounds weird, you know? So maybe I can just go in, check it out. And if it is really that horrible, I'm a consultant, so I can just, you know, sneak out. So I did. And then I quickly learned that I was completely wrong. To me, the games industry is, yeah, it's the best place I've been. It's really filled with people who are very passionate and very generous. Like people genuinely want others to succeed 
we help each other out. I mean, I when I started, I knew nothing. So I asked a lot of really stupid, basic questions, like almost on the level of what is a game? And, you know, the people there, they just told me and they helped me and then we sort of worked together. And I feel that that has been my experience all along. I know that, you know, there's a lot of talk about toxicity. There obviously are some issues. I just never experienced them. I just, I've been lucky enough to see all the good sides. I mean, even now when I work with Game Boost, I thought, okay, now I'm on the other side. <laughs> now I'm that, I'm that person now who's going to sell them stuff. Maybe this is going to change now. But when I reach out to people, even cold outreach, it can be like, hey, uh, I'm looking for a concept artist. You know, you don't know me, but are you interested? And then the person can come back to me and be like, oh, hey, hey, um, no, I, you know, unfortunately I'm busy, but you can try to contact these two people. I think they might be a good fit. So it's a really, yeah, it's a really nice environment. People help each other out. And I really like that about the games industry. Nice. It's uplifting to hear that because as you say, I think most of what you hear when you talk about the industry, I haven't thought about it that much, but most of the things is negative. It's rare that you do hear that people praise or talk about their good experiences, even though there are both both examples are out there. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's like all of the things. You, you, you shout about stuff when you're not happy. But I think when you just talk to people in general, I think the common idea is that it is a nice business. At least, you know, the people I surround myself with in the games industry, we all kind of have the same view that it is a really nice place to be and that people are really generous and, and nice to each other. But obviously, I think in an industry like this, where people actually work with their passion and everyone is like, yep, this is my baby. I know how this is going to be you know, done in the best way. It's also kind of hard to not be disappointed because we're making one game. So we cannot have 20 ideas come to life. It has to be one red thread. So a lot of the times your baby just gets shut down. That's not super easy if you're very passionate. Like if you're working in, in another industry, you might feel like, okay, well, I don't really you know, care that much about this project. But here it's like the line gets a little yeah. bit blurred between your hobby and life and, and your work. So I think it's people have higher stakes emotionally in this business. And that's why also maybe some people get more disappointed sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And I think also that it's maybe due to if we take a related industry, film, for example. So there, when people work on movies, either if it's with lightning or makeup or special effects or whatever it is, it's more of a, like a waterfall process. So somebody comes up with a script and then you have a producer that's set up who is the director and stuff. But I think it's more democratized in the games industry, is my view at least, that even though you are the guy who are making explosions in the game, you can still have impactful opinions about the game that come to fruition. But that would not be the case, for example, in films or other similar arts. Yeah. I mean, I think that is 
very dependent on the studio and then on the game director. I've seen teams where it's very democratic. Everyone can have an opinion. And then I've seen teams that are very top-driven. So I think we can have both. But maybe compared to film, we have a little bit more of the democratic teams, maybe. Yeah. It's sort of like the marshmallow test. When you have it right in front of you to get what you want, that's a lot harder than if it's 50 miles away and this is decided, uh, so to speak. Yeah. But I think also that notion or, or that thing that you just said, Otto, that people kind of expect, like in games, everyone's opinion is heard and, you know, I'm going to have a big impact. And you will. But that doesn't mean that all of your ideas are going to be implemented. And I think sometimes people struggle a little bit with that. I always imagine if I had a gazillion dollars in my bank and started made a AAA game, I sort of imagine this very long whiteboard in the studio and I draw like the start point here. This is the start of the game and then this is the finish line. And then I sort of draw, let's say, five dots along the way. This is going to happen when you're 20% into the game. This is going to happen here. This is going to happen here. So in a sort of a less democratic way, I guess a little bit more old school, if you will. But then I also imagine that the people working on the game can branch off from my path. But as long as I hit these particular points that I really want in the game as the director or the, the creative mind behind the game. That's how I imagine it being. But obviously, if someone have a better idea than mine, then I, I guess I would. <laughs> I'm easily convinced. Yeah, and I think that is kind of how it has to be. Because, I mean, creative freedom is good. But it has to, in my opinion, exist in some sort of context. So there has to be, I mean, if, if we're not going to end up with 20 games in the game, you have to have that. You have to have someone who says, you know, this is what it's going to be. This is the core. This is, you know, what the players is going to feel and experience. But then obviously within that, you can have some freedom. But I don't think it's going to work if everyone has the same say, because then we're going to, you know, make it forever. And maybe it's not even going to become a game after forever. Exactly. I think I told you, Otto, before when I tried to make a game with two friends, my, my brother and a friend, it was just like three creatives sitting there throwing a bunch of ideas on the wall and nothing came out of it because we were all too, we had too many ideas. And at one point I said like, we have to make three different games and in each game one of us can be the dictator and the other two be the the workers so to speak yeah but i think that is uh, you know my <laughs> my real interest is you know leadership and and it's very interesting to be a leader in the games industry and i think one of the most if not the most aspects of that is to be able to explain to people why their idea is good but maybe not for this game or for this feature. And I think that is maybe also where we lack a little bit of skill in the games industry. That yeah. goes for leaders on all levels, that you need to be able to tell a person that's super passionate about what they just did, that we're not going to use it. And then you have to explain why, so they don't break down. <laughs> I think that's a very interesting aspect of the leadership in games. 
I think that will have to be something for our listeners to think about. Very thought-provoking, very good. Yeah, I've got to say, before we quit, my view on many things changed a lot (laughs) throughout this conversation. Very happy to hear that a lot of my sort of uh, prejudging opinions have swayed a a, a bit from your answers and your experience. Way more positive. Uh, Come out on the other side of the episode, way more positive to everything. Very nice. Oh, wow, that makes me happy. Yeah, I, I thought it was awesome to hear your your um, story and, and your experience and your skills in the industry. So that's very nice. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I would say the same. I sort of have uh, this uh, a warm, fuzzy feeling about the games industry and more positivity than what you usually hear. That's really great to hear. So can I just go back to a question that you asked, Otto, like way back that I didn't really answer, which was how does one start working with Game Boost? Like if you want to work with Game Boost and get gigs, how do you do it? Yes, absolutely. Well, you either just reach out to me or Tommy on LinkedIn or wherever you find us. If you see us somewhere, just poke us. Or you can go to the webpage, which is gameboost.se, where it's just a form that you fill in. It's quite lengthy. We're working on making it a little bit shorter. Uh, You fill that in and and that's it. So it's kind of easy. Then obviously you don't automatically get a gig, but then you're at least on a radar. If something that matches your profile gets in, we will contact you. And... I think you have a Discord server as well, if I'm not mistaken. Is that for everyone or just the ones who got in, so to speak? Uh, No, that is for everyone. Unfortunately, it's a little bit uh, dead. Not much action going on there. But but anyone who wants to jump in there and make it come to life a little bit more, feel free. I mean, there are a lot of indie developers mostly there. And like I said, my idea was for that to be a place where you can help each other out, maybe review each other's work, exchange some work if you needed an artist, maybe you get and change that for some programming hours or, or, you know, just help each other in general. But it hasn't really happened. I guess you kind of need a a community manager to make that happen. Uh, But it's there and there are people in there. And if someone asks something, people normally answers. So, yeah, that's an option too. Well, I hope we can direct some listeners to that Discord so we can revive it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be good. Is there anything else you want to say or somewhere where you want to send our listeners before we end the episode? No, nothing more than, you know, just keep doing what you do. Keep the dream alive. And I mean, that's the first step. You have to have courage and you have to just do it. And that's how you succeed. Small steps and just do it. Very good. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was very interesting. And thank you, Rune, my co-host, and thank you everyone for listening. Hi, thank you guys, and see you next week. See you. Bye. Bye.